Well, this is Lino Gastensen, and I am interested in this uh, episode that is about childbirth, you know, as being a mum myself, obviously I've been through the experience and it was very pleasant, but of course it wasn't always like that. It had a lot of danger in it. Uh, yes, um, uh, childbirth was on, has been in history a major killer of, of women. Mm. Um, and, you know, in the middle of the 19th century, not that long ago, between 40 and 60 women in every thousand would die giving birth. Oh, very um, it was dangerous. It was very dangerous, and it's so dangerous that in you know in the UK, the Church of England, I should say, um, there was a, a, included in the prayer book a service for women who had recently given birth and had come to to church. It was called churching. The oh. first time you get uh, come to church after childbirth. Oh, really? It was a, a thing to do. It so was. It would get a blessing. It, and, uh... Exactly. And it included thanks to God mm. for, quote, the safe deliverance and preservation from the great dangers of childbirth. And what were the dangers uh, common? Well, apparently, um, something called pyrexia, and as I'm not a doctor, I'm not going to try and define that, but essentially it could lead to sepsis. Mm. So that's a very fast-acting killer. Uh, Hemorrhage, so uncontrolled bleeding. Convulsions or eclampsia, I think a lot of people now know about preeclampsia and eclampsia. Mm. But the big killer was illegal abortion. Yeah. Um, And those women who were were seeking illegal abortion, had illegal abortions, obviously didn't go to hospital. So that's something to bear in mind. But all abortions were illegal, so there wasn't really much of a choice there. No, no, indeed. Indeed, but they were were extreme, they were big killers. Um, Now, doctors, many doctors were trying to improve this, and amongst those was this amazing woman called Annie McCall, who treated pregnant women in her clinics in South London. Um, and she actually invest. She she built a hospital, uh, got the funds to build a hospital Amazing. in Stockwell. But going back to the the mortality rate, if yeah. you remove the non-live births, so if you take those illegal abortions out of the equation, yes. When she was working, maternal deaths in England and Wales were running at about five per thousand. Mm. Um, very different to the forty or sixty per thousand we were talking about earlier. Mm. But so if you think, keep five or six per thousand in your heads, um, she managed to get it down to 1.65 in every thousand. It's quite remarkable. How how did she do this? Well, um, we talked, I talked to Professor Susan Bewley to find out. Before I recorded the interview with Susan Bewley on the life and work of maternity pioneer Annie McCall, Lena and I went down to the old hospital to take a look and continue our conversation. We're here in Annie McCall Close in Stockwell. There's not much left of the original hospital. No, it's been turned into luxury flats, of course. Mm. Um, Not very lovely ones, but there you go. Mind, mind you, they didn't. They, it it had been closed for a very long time when they uh, 
converted it. The hospital, it? Yeah. yes. Yes, it was uh, uh, decades, I think, mm. was falling to bits and um, occupied by some very interesting artists yes. who kept, kept the building actually standing up. They did loads of work just to keep it, you know, here with us. Yeah. And then it was sold off to developers and here we are with the flats. And it has been renovated. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, see, you, can, you can hint a former glory. You can see the various wards and you can imagine yes, what it was like. Long hospital windows um, and uh, hospital gates. The, 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 the facade is really quite impressive. Mm. Founded, of course, by Annie McCall, Dr. Mm. Annie McCall. And before that, she had operated a number of maternity facilities for women in this area. And she was a real trailblazer when it came to maternity health. What I think um, is extraordinary is, of course, you know, it's amazing she did this practice and she qualified as a doctor and she only uh, uh, taught women. You know, all of this is amazing, the sort of clinical, medical mm. thing. But actually to raise money to build a hospital, yes. that is also extraordinary. Well, she, you know, just to she, raise had, money to she, yeah, she had some um, wealthy uh, sponsors. Yeah. There was a woman called Lady Bealby who contributed a lot. Yes. Yes, Lady Bealby did did uh, give major donations and the, and the public gave donations. It was one of those yeah. good causes so that attracts funding yes. a la. <laughs> and she was sort of an internationalist as well because of course UK had a lot of um, colonies at that point. Yes. And and, and uh, didn't she have um, trained women from other countries as well. Absolutely. She took many from uh, West Africa. She said, if you can do the job, that's the job. Yeah. She didn't hold with any of that. Um, that must have been quite unusual <laughs> at that point. <laughs> well, I think it was. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think, I, you know, possibly, yes. As an institution, it probably was. Although, yeah. I mean, there were um, people from overseas qualifying as doctors. Yeah. But I think... She, I think because she made it, she was so clear about it. Yeah. That was probably what marked her out. And she only trained women. She did. Yeah. She only trained women. Nothing but the best was good enough for the women who came to her for help and guidance. And she spared neither herself nor those who worked with her in her insistence on service as the unvarying watchword. We're talking about Dr Annie McCall, who was a pioneer in maternity care in London at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century. I'm here with Susan Bewley, who is a professor of obstetrics. Susan, tell us a bit more about your background. Um, I'm a fourth generation doctor. Um, my parents came over from Ireland at the beginning of the NHS in the middle of the last century and um, I trained in obstetrics and women's health and I worked locally as a consultant at uh, Guy's and St Thomas's hospitals before I retired. So welcome to the door Susan. Um, I think maybe we should start with uh, some key facts about this remarkable doctor Annie McCall. Um, she was born on the 23rd of September 1859 at Wally Range in Manchester. So she wasn't from London. She was the middle of five children. 
and her father died of TB when she was four, which may have inspired her to go into medicine later in her life. She also had a brother who had spinal TB. Now, her mother was very keen on education, and uh, as a widow, she needed the support of her brother, Annie McCall's uncle, who was very opposed, but Annie's mother insisted that they moved to Germany for the sake of her children's education. So they went to Göttingen, which is near Hanover. And actually, her mother left all of her three daughters there to complete their teenage education. Uh, They did return, of course, and Annie went to Cheltenham Ladies College, where she matriculated. And then she went to medical school in Paris. Uh, But a friend of the family, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, who is very well known in her own right for establishing a women's hospital in London, uh, she advised Annie's mother to bring her home and send her instead to the London School of Medicine, which Susan, I understand, grew into being the Royal Free Hospital in, in northwest London. But that's where all the first women were qualified, uh-huh. and I was very positive about women when all the other medical schools wouldn't let them in. Well, Annie was obviously extremely bright and academic, and she did very well wherever she went. Um, she, a part of her training, she did three months at Queen Charlotte's Hospital, and at other maternity hospitals, and she also that she then went to Dublin, and she qualified there, and she got a special certificate in midwifery, which was beginning to, well, which was obviously by then, uh, a subject which greatly interested her, and she finished off with uh, a qualification in Bern, Switzerland, where she became a doctor of medicine. She was at the age of twenty six. Is that the age you normally qualify? Uh, now, twenty about twenty six. I think 26. these people go straight from school. They can come out about twenty three, twenty four. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it's not uncommon, and certainly in America, where it's a graduate program, or if people mm-hmm. do it graduates, it's mid twenties. Mm-hmm. Still, it's still, still, still the same. Well, it still seems quite young to me to start on such a um, responsible job. But anyway, she she moved to Dulwich in South London, and um, she went immediately into uh, practicing medicine amongst the community, amongst ordinary people many of them extremely poor and she um she worked with a a clinic in stockwell in fact um and they operated out of a mission hall they were seeing people who who were really subsisting at at a very um poverty stricken level and her work there made her deeply concerned about the high maternal death rates that she was seeing and she very soon established her own school of midwifery in her own home on Tapham Road, 165. Now, she also, with um, in collaboration with other people, she established an um, outpatient department so she could see women in their pregnancies. And at the age of 30, in 1889, she and her cousin Marion Ritchie opened the Clapham Maternity Hospital also in Stockwell. So she achieved a great deal quite early in her life and she went on for a very long time. She didn't die until she was 90 and she retired when she was 82. So she really had a long career in medicine. She achieved some remarkable things. Um, So Susan, I mentioned Elizabeth Garrett Anderson um, and in fact Annie McCall was one of the first 50 women to qualify as doctors in this country. 
was quite exceptional for a woman to be a doctor. Oh, absolutely. It was uh, very rare. This is, nevertheless, this is still well ahead of women lawyers in terms mm -hmm. of letting women into the professions. And I think health may have been a bit more obvious that because of women's so-called modesty, that the health care of women needed to be looked after by women nurses, midwives, and then this role for doctors. So I think a lot of, of the very earliest women doctors were pioneers, setting up women-only services um, and providing medical care for women. Mm -hmm. Even though I don't think any specialises so much as she did that early on. She Yes, she seems to have had a lot, great deal of forward thinking about how she wanted things to go. And she had quite a strong personality, very pleasant personality, but she was quite strong-minded, I think. Yes. Um, and we'll come to what she was like a bit later. But um, at this time, as I understand it, there wasn't a great deal of understanding of women's bodies. Or if I say that's not quite that, women's bodies through the centuries had not been understood in the way perhaps that men's bodies had. Um, there was a great deal of um, confusion about menstruation and pregnancy itself, and yeah. fascination as well, because I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. the beginning of life. But yeah. there was, women's bodies were difficult to um, examine because of uh, modesty concerns. And um, the, the standard seems to have been to look at men's bodies first, and then women are the exception to that. I think that's probably still the case. I, th I think we've got a long leg legacy of uh, people not understanding that it's absolutely normal to have cycles. It's absolutely mm. normal to uh, leak fluids like breast milk. Um, and uh, we've long suffered being the second sex with second-rate bodies that mm. are fragile and frail. Mm -hmm. And as you say, that the roots of that might well be partly in the difficulty of understanding um, the scientific advances and how they were done. Um, but, you know, medicine's got a, a long and complicated patriarchal and sexist history like like uh, many others I'm afraid but people were learning a bit more about anatomy and the, and the anatomists although that was a bit difficult and the the level of education was for everybody was very low mm -hmm. um, there, there was always uh, you know these ideas of the wandering womb and this hysteria that yes, women suffer the mystery and of, our, of our women's mood. bodies yeah. yeah and and clearly you know the major there were prophylactics or kind of condoms but mostly contraception was through breastfeeding through mm. continual repeated pregnancies mm -hmm. uh, and people did know there's a connection between sex and pregnancy and not having menstruation but that was very taboo mm. as well so yeah. we can't we can't put ourselves back into the mindsets of the no. men and women of those days I think no, well it all. is very difficult yes yes but but Annie McCall running an all-female establishment mm. her nurses and her midwives and her doctors were all women mm. um, they perhaps didn't have to think about uh, constraints of modesty um, so much you know apart from normal manners uh, and they would have acquired a great deal of education shared amongst themselves and in their and passed on through through their trainees in a way, perhaps, that mixed establishments or male establishments just couldn't possibly have, do that. It would have been a very powerful atmosphere mm. to have a, a leader who was a teacher um, and highly admired and who had a vision and who did introduce 
high standards of diet and uh, education and cleanliness, I think it would have been a, a very inspiring place to have trained and worked. Yes, and uh, you know, she had uh, obviously very, uh, an inspirational character, mm. and people uh, who trained with her and worked with her felt huge affection for her. Uh, she she may have looked a little bit formidable. She she wore sort of dark clothing and um, quite sort of masculine style, very plain. Um, but she um, she was also very kind mm. and humane, and she seems to have treated her patients with a great deal of compassion and uh, tolerance at a time when, for instance, unmarried women were sometimes turned away from from establishments. Mm. But I think it, she would have. She seems to have been very humane. She had. She suffered early on with the illnesses and death, and would have seen the difficulty her mother had financially and so mm. forth. Mm. And I think she clearly saw each woman as a person in their mm. own right, mm -hmm. and was compassionate. And to be to have that attitude that was welcoming, inclusive, and would give uh, support and encouragement to women through midwifery which we know mm. nowadays we know that continuity of care and kindness goes a long way to even preventing prematurity and making birth better i think she'd have she'd have felt the virtuous circle that she was creating mm. in that you know what we now call you know non-judgmental approaches to patients and you know seeing how much women suffer through their health and being able to do something about it uh, and be committed to entirely two women as she mm. was mm. um uh, it's it is it is it is remarkable but you know this was also she was you know she was there at the time of the suffragettes she was a suffragette yes I think. she was yes well well suffragist i would say oh, suffragist yes um Yes, I mean, she, she stood up for women in, in lots of different ways. And as you say, she saw them as individuals. Yeah. And she um, she was, she was educated them. So she developed sort of printed materials for them yeah. uh, in, in a, a language that they could understand. So not uh, condescending to them in, with using medical language, for instance, but advising them how to eat well and exercise well and prepare themselves for their births, births in in a, health, a healthy way that we would recognise as yeah. you know a good yeah. a good way to live, yeah. but perhaps at the time wasn't always pointed out to pregnant women. Yeah. And um, and maybe she saw more about. Um, I mean, she would have been growing up as an adult just when the Married Women's Pr Property Act was passed. You know, mm. she she clearly saw herself as an equal someone yes. deserving of education yes. and would have and if she herself um understood that and that was a pioneer and then wanted it for mm. her her class her sisters or women you, it would be very easy and you could see why she wouldn't be married um, mm. you know, she was just devoted to the um, absolutely she was her people she was, she, people, she was a pro proper old-style public servant wasn't yeah. she she was yeah. um and she she not only did maternity care but she also cared for wounded soldiers from the first world war absolutely and she uh, developed a regime for treating tuberculosis so uh she, she was she, she spread her interests around but her focus was on women yeah. um 
I th think probably she could see that uh, uh, they were vulnerable to, uh, you know, to abuse, mm. to poverty, mm. and to just overwork. She must have seen women almost die of oh, too many children and overwork. Absolutely. Well, and whatever she did, there was a contribution to make uh, that brought maternal mortality down. Yes. Which breaks that terrible intergenerational cycle of extreme poverty and destitution mm. and orphans. And so um, she, she would see that. And again, I think you're, you're pointing out with the... Um, disabled soldiers that she would see the humanity she would mm. see that people who can't fight for themselves or mm. get work again mm -hmm. you know you, you can't you either distinguish your, and ask people to pay and have private yes. patients or you also take that attitude of universalism yes which you know again something that preceded mm. the nhs that she just about saw yes she yes died. she only had a few months before before she died at the grand old age of 90. Mm. Um, yes, and she also ran her hospital on long lines. I mean, she, she, I suppose in a way she was a sort of second Florence Nightingale when it came to um, maternity hospitals and how they're run because she, uh, she was very clear about how she wanted the operate, not the operation, but um, the management of the hospital mm. to go. Um, fresh air, cleanliness, um, and 10 or 12 days bed rest mm. for women after they had their mm. babies. Um, now, most women would have them at home, wouldn't they, I understand, at this time. Yes, and well, and those who did go to uh, maternity hospitals, um, quite often if they, we, some of the obstetric disasters were because doctors were moving from the mortuary to the bedsides mm. and delivering patients and the the great streptococcal fevers and the caused purple uh, postnatal mm. uh, infections and sepsis and death were very high those rates mm. um in in the sort of hospital institutions so mm. she i think although we wouldn't want people lying in bed for two no. weeks nowadays <laughs> we worry about clots on well, the legs one, one hope that hopes that they had some exercise well i'm sure they would, she was very keen on they would have been much younger mm. and thinner than nowadays <laughs> as well uh, the, these young women and and probably up and about mm. um but i think that kind of sense of caring and uh, rushing to support the mothers by helping with the, the daily living and mm. eating and so mm -hmm. forth uh, that very caring thing sets up the new mother yes. for her children yes. she gets a break from her domestic duties mm. so it was a uh, that concept of convalescence has, mm. has almost yes. vanished yes, nowadays. Of course, yes. um, so and, and and i think also if they had small wards with four beds mm. there would have been a lot of community mm -hmm. and, and experienced mothers would be talking to new mothers mm. and giving them support yes um and and that not only the midwives but i think those women help women in labor mm. and we've lost a lot of that with smaller families and mm. sisters and mothers and yeah experience so, I, yeah. so you sit there thinking how were the how were the maternal mortality rates so low because it was you know watchful waiting judicious non-interference we call it yes but also very much midwifery with women mm. um mm -hmm. so she was absolutely the opposite of some of yeah. today's Yes. Interventionist obstetrician. And and she certainly would not allow any unqualified person to do any of um operations, any procedures. 
Uh, so she was, she she made sure that they were properly trained before they did anything. Yeah, and they so probably the, did a, f- few, a few forceps and things yeah. like that from time to time. But mm. but I think she'd have been one of those very ca- cautious doctors. That the, the, the way we talk about, you know, a good surgeon knows how to operate a better surgeon, when to operate the best surgeon, when not to operate. So I think she, she sounds leave things alone mm-hmm. um, and let nature take its course mm-hmm. as much as possible. But mm-hmm. but obviously would have by the antenatal care, which we now know is what is the most mm-hmm. well, one of the most vital things to get your maternal mortality etc down. I think she would have been doing that, which was yes part of the trick as well. Yes. Now um, as as we've discussed, she she lived for a very long time and retired when she was 82 and she left a fantastic legacy mm-hmm. and not only in the building of Clapham Maternity Hospital but she elevated training standards as we've discussed and she she developed this practice which is, is quite a broad view uh, uh, she covered lots of things in her practice that, that were an improvement on before and she did TB treatment uh, she was also involved in the Central Midwives Board, which um, I don't know whether it's still called that, but uh, I think the structure, the sort of administrative structure of qualification is also important, and, and she was certainly a um, founding member of that. Yeah. Um, so she really achieved a huge amount, and it's a shame that more people don't know about her. So I'm quite pleased it, that we're here talking is. about well, her. We, we lose women's histories, yes. isn't that what they yes. say? <laughs> Yes, and um, I would hope that somewhere there's a plaque, a blue plaque somewhere, but um, that's yet to come. Uh, I I'm don't know, but I do think there's a photograph here. We've just had our second female president ever at the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the first one a long time ago, Dame Hilda, whatever. And Leslie Reagan put up a lot of photographs of great women of obstetrics and gynaecology, and I'm pretty sure Annie McCall was one of them. Oh, I hope so. I, I, I hope so. so. That, would, that would be a good thing, yeah. yes. at the end of this episode of The Door. Don't forget to subscribe to the series on your chosen podcast platform. We are on social media. We're on Facebook and on Twitter where we are at The Door Podcast. All details of our episodes are on our website, thedoorpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter.